This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We're going to talk about hydro, which is a bugaboo of a lot of people, uh, including me. I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, deny the fact that I'm happy on one hand that the wind government has cut hydro rates by 25%, but at the same time, I wonder at what point are we really going to pay that bill? It just seems that it's a, a you know a bit of an election ploy. Um, you know, show show a twenty five percent reduction. Show that you empathize with the taxpayer. Show that you empathize with the hydro rate payer. Show that you you get it, and that you as the premier are just like all of us. Um, you know, that's what you want to show. That's politics, uh, right? But uh, you know, we're talking about a bill that according to uh, one uh, legislative watchdog says will top 21 billion over the next three decades. That's the cost of this 25% cut. And somebody's going to have to pay that bill at some point. And do you want to drop back 10 and punt it down to your grandchildren and others? My goodness, it's a complicated kind of scenario. And joining us on the line to talk about it is our friend Tom Adams, independent energy and environment consultant. Tom, nice to have you back on the program. Just great, Jamie. Thanks very much. Kathleen Wynne, our premier in Ontario, is uh, defending her government's decision uh, to cut hydro rates by 25%, saying the costs highlighted in the uh, financial accountability officer's uh, report uh, were just what people uh, were paying for before the cut. She's she doesn't uh, quite see it as something that's being kicked down the road for other people to pay. Give us your take on that. Well, you know, some of this is just blatantly obvious, right? If you're taking your monthly uh, uh, rent cost and putting it onto your credit card bill, you're uh, rolling over minimum monthly balance you're going to end up uh, uh, paying a lot more for your housing. And that's just what the government's electricity plan is. Um, uh, it, it, it's just unbelievably careless to uh, uh, put the, the, the cost of today's electricity onto future customers. There's just absolutely no justification for it. The government really doesn't have a plan. Um, uh, so we've got the financial accountability officer saying that you know deficit financing electricity is not a good idea. We've also got the auditor general saying that the the, the government's accounting for all of this by creating a phony asset, claiming that these costs are all recoverable in future, is just nonsense. So we've got the professionals, the the adults in the room are speaking. It's time for the politicians to listen. Yeah, and how likely is that to happen, Tom? I mean, you know, governments are only, you know, a few years. Their their lifespan is only a few years. It's it goes from one election day to the next election day, and they're only a few years apart. So that's as far ahead as any politician in government is thinking. Well, what we've got here is a, a legislation that's now being debated before the House. Um, uh, there have to be members of the Liberal Caucus uh, that that are you know are just uh, maybe a little better at adding two plus two than 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 the Premier and the Finance Minister, but that can put some pressure on on the government to withdraw this just careless 
legislative nonsense that they've put forward here. They don't have a plan. They, what, what's happened? Look, history has caught up with with this government. They've made a lot of careless decisions over the course of of, of the you know last fourteen fifteen years. These things have all kind of come forward. They have accumulated. Um, the power bill is revealing the extent of the gross negligence that's gone down there at Queen's Park. Um, uh, but rather than kind of admit to the mistakes and, 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 and come up with a plan that addresses the underlying factors that are driving up power rates, instead they're playing this kind of game of, of financial flim-flam uh, of uh, a deficit financing electricity costs. Yeah, flim-flam. Uh, that's probably a good, way to, a, a good way to put it. I mean, even at even a 25% rate reduction. Let's let's just go back and and look at that. Is is even that going to be enough to to make enough of a difference to enough people who find it hard to pay their bills on a monthly basis? Well, you know, it, it's uh, a, a, a 25% across the board uh, electricity cost reduction only takes us back to electricity uh, uh, rates uh, that customers were paying just a, a couple of years ago. See, there's the perspective, Tom. That's that's the part that is often uh, overlooked by people, and you're giving it to us. Carry on. I like this. Well, like um, um, customers were getting screwed uh, by uh, unconscionable electricity costs. You know, back in 2012, 2013, um, and so these 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 rate, you know, this 25 percent across the board cut just takes us back to the rates that we were paying back then. Um, and again, you know, this is just a short term gain for long term pain kind of a problem. Uh, the, you know, the, the fundamentals here are that the cost of power um, uh, is unaffected by what the government has proposed. Rather than actually address the, the factors that are causing the, the cost of power going up, the, the, this so-called fair hydro plan. Can you, can you believe the language they use, right? I know the fair, fair hydro. Call this thing fair. Like, yeah. it's just a, you know, fair from the point of view of a couple of years, like just immediately <laughs> after the election, who has to pick up the tab. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but they, they use this joke language, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to kind of put this kind of, uh, kind of happy lipstick on the pig. Um, but there, there's no extent to which th- this is refinancing or reamortization. They're not changing any costs, so the costs continue to spiral out of control. The the, the stupid programs that keep building up the cost of power, uh, I, it, there's. They're still going along with a whole series of acronyms, FIT5, LRP1, LRP2. These stupid programs just keep adding billions and billions to the future cost of electricity. And, and uh, you know, meanwhile, the, 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 this 
concealment program of putting costs onto the credit card is uh, is you know, what the government's calling fair. Yeah, it's the worst kind of financial management that that y- you can you can really uh, look at. I mean, uh, in our own uh, individual lives, um, y- you know. Uh, you borrow too much on that credit card at a high interest rate, you, you know, you know, but you've only got so much income, you know that you're going to be paying the minimum for, you know, 100 years. It, it'll tell you that right on the statement. This is the same kind of thing. And this is not the kind of leadership that that we need or want in this province. We don't want to be penny wise. And it's argumentable. You know, you can argue whether it's wise, uh, penny wise and pound foolish. Um, it, this is this just seems insane. And and again, when I drive around the province and I see you know, windmills and farmers' fields and things, it just irritates me even more. I begin to bristle even more about um, the political nonsense that's gone on to uh, create those messes as well, uh, wind, uh, you know, propellers that that break down, that nobody gave any consideration to the maintenance of, uh, et cetera, that are, you know, they catch fire, they burn up. Uh, it's nuts. It's nuts. We have no plan for hydro. Yeah, that, I, I think... You know, just kind of stepping away from the detail uh, um, uh, of you know the you know all the, the the to and fro of the legislation and the testimony and whatnot going on down at Queens Park, the the, the very fundamentals of this uh, uh, um, re- relate to uh, the way we politicize the power system. So the the professionals. Uh, at, at the agencies like the Independent Electricity System Operator, the Ontario Energy Board, and others, they all got sidelined. Um, uh, the Auditor General, who's been doing fantastic work on uh, uh, analyzing electricity cost uh, uh, screw-ups, starting in 2011, just one report after another, fantastic work by the Auditor General, Financial Accountability Officer, you know, uh, um, uh, doing terrific work on the Hydro One sale, all kinds of things. Those people were all ignored. And the politicians took over the decision-making process. And, and you know, so they had... At one time, this notion that the electricity system was going to create a jobs and investment bonanza. And, and so uh, 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 Dalton McGinty and, and George Smitherman and a bunch of these other just a- absolute incompetence uh, ran up literally dozens of billions of dollars of, of liabilities in this mistaken concept that uh, the electricity sector could be a jobs uh, and investment generator, then the, um, uh, you know, so that program was all put in place. Then on top of it, they got these these stupid conservation programs going. Uh, Hey, look, Ontario's electricity demand has been declining since 2005, driven by rising electricity costs. Customers don't need uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of program costs every year to subsidize all these coupons and nonsense about these conservation programs. We get the message. We are conserving. We're doing yep, what we needs are. to be done. Yep. Um, uh, but it, but it, 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 there's all kinds of interest groups behind, the, uh, whether it's the wind turbines, the solar panels, the conservation programs. There's the billions of dollars that are getting wasted on these stupid programs are being sucked up by a bunch of very um, uh, politically active interest groups, 
that lobby for these things. They sing the praises of the minister. They hand out awards to the minister. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. George, George Smitherman uh, uh, was granted a Wind Power of the Year for the World Award for his great, uh, uh, you know, for, for the way he screwed the customers of Ontario. <laughs> yep, yep. And Got it, it just goes, you know. On and on. On and on. Exactly. Tom, we got to run. Uh, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much as always. So good. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Linda Chenoweth is uh, a former school teacher, and she's written an opinion piece in The Spectator outlining uh, the violence she endured at the hands of students during her teaching career, which uh, went from 1989 to 2012. Um, She highlights a a lack of training in how to deal with... uh, uh, things as one of the issues facing teachers. She also discusses her belief that social issues like poverty, affordable housing, parenting, pollution, and nutrition are root causes of uh, of student violence. And she um, she also points to a lack of resources in her piece. She says that over the years, more children were born with problems or developed them, and, and currently schools are comprised of numerous what she calls one-room schoolhouses, um, where there's, you know, there are many students with psychological and behavioral issues, and often there's just one teacher, you know, the old one-room schoolhouse uh, model, uh, and that teacher doesn't have support from an educational assistant. Students with special issues uh, often lash out in physically aggressive behaviors. Uh, attitudes toward parenting are more permissive and have, <clears throat> excuse me, produced students who have difficulty following instruction, waiting their turn to speak, and with other self-regulatory skills. Parents are ready to blame the schools and the teacher before they even ask about the issue at hand. I have no trouble whatsoever believing what Linda is saying. None whatsoever. I think she outlined in that one paragraph probably the biggest problem that we have uh, going on here. Joining us on the line to talk about it is uh, Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, Jamie, how are you? Good. Um, that that one paragraph I read uh, from Linda Chenoweth's um, uh, opinion piece, I think does a pretty good job of, of summarizing what the average classroom in an elementary school today looks like. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah elementary, high school. I think she did a really good job. I think she and the, and the good thing about it is that she outlined that there's a lot of different factors, not just one one specific simple factor. So it's a, I think it's a fairly compli- complex issue. It is a complex issue, Theo. And, and sh- you know, again, she points to things like, um, you know, poverty, affordable housing, parenting, pollution, nutrition. Uh, throw everything in there as, as a contributor to why kids are becoming uh, more, I suppose, violent as she's, you know, which is the center of her piece, or, or angry. What, what do you see? Why are kids... Uh, more wound up? Is it a lack of parenting? Well, you know what, again, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of things. The things that she outlined certainly would have an impact on neurological development. I think uh, we can't separate the rise of ADHD and, um, and autism, which are neurological issues from uh, brain development, brain functioning, from environmental factors, from poverty, all these things that she's talked about, which, of course, that sends a ripple effect through the education system in terms of adequate resources and sometimes integrating kids that really are not really a good fit for integration, that they'd be better served in, in special ed classes, uh, or if they are integrated, there are not enough resources to fully integrate them. 
But I think there's also, um, you know, I think there's maybe a general lessening of respect for education in general uh, and uh, possibly a re- lessening of respect for authority figures and uh, for good reasons. I mean, we had a president who ran on the principle of just declaring outwardly that he loves the undereducated. Uh, you know, education, reason, rational uh, thinking wasn't really the determining factor in who won. I mean, we had a, just last night, we've had a congressman uh, win uh, a seat a day after he assaulted a reporter. That never would have happened before. The guy physically assaulted a reporter, wrestled him down, body slammed him, wrestled him on the ground, news spread all over the place. He still got elected. And so it seems to be kind of a, a diminishing of, well, you know, authority figures, do we really need to respect them? Are they respect-worthy? And does education really matter anymore? Well, and there, there's, uh, there seems to be a true uh, lack of consequence in, in society. I, I've often argued that, um, if you if you really want the the true barometer on on our society, step inside an elementary school or a high school. Well, there's the you talk about accountability. One of the biggest things that people have that she didn't mention there that I think is undermining the in, in, entire school system and development accountability is the move towards no failure. Uh, you know, absolutely, and and that extends to the that extends to the to the playing fields as well, the soccer fields, the baseball fields, the you know all of that, uh, the participation ribbons instead of uh, uh, winners and losers and that sort of thing. But go ahead. Well, well, I mean, you know, in the playing field, here's the thing: at least if you're playing in a sports team, uh, there is failure because if you don't participate well, if you're not working well with your, if you're not respecting your coach, listening to your coach, or working well with your teammates, there is still failure in terms of you're not winning the game. Yeah, but a lot of it's leagues are out ruling are, are ruling that out, Theo. They're saying, yeah, no, we're not we're not going to count goals anymore. I know. Uh, when but overall, these... overall, if you're still part of a league, you're still going to lose. Okay, so... But that, the main point here, though, is that in the classroom, that is no longer the case. If you don't work well with your, quote-unquote, teammates, classmates, if you don't respect your coach slash teacher, what's the consequence? Let's suppose you get suspended. Well, it doesn't impact your ability to pass or fail anymore. It's essentially a holiday unless your parents are upset with you because they have to hire babysitters. That might be the case. But it doesn't impact your success rate. It doesn't have any sort of real accountability. You can't fail anymore. So it doesn't matter what you do, how you behave. There isn't that accountability in the classrooms anymore. And when, when we took away the failure as connected to to your interactions with your classmates, with your teacher, with your efforts, that undermined the whole school system in terms of being able to develop good citizens who understood that there were consequences for their lack of, of good behavior. And and you just t- you just hit the nail on the head, good citizens. I mean, that, that it was always a, a part of the education system. That was at the at the root of it. That's why we send kids to school. That's why we have schools um, well, to educate gonna, them and develop their, their social skills. Is I'm it not? Say that, I'm going to say that that was the case, but I think that that is no longer the case. Right. I, do not, I don't think that there is much attention to schools in terms of developing social skills. The main emphasis now on schools is two. One is to pump out students with high averages so that you can get a really good rating and be able to say that a lot of your kids were successful in high school and university. And the other one is uh, really focused on specific academics, specifically math, which is really important to be able to be functional, with the idea that school is now all about being able to make sure that students have the best chance at being able to get a particular career. So the focus now is on the end result, not the process in which you develop who you are as a social being, as a good citizen, 
who understands how to treat people well and learns how to treat people with respect. Where did this all begin, Theo? Where did where did things change? What can can you pinpoint a, a time when this occurred? Well, I think it's just a, I think it's more of a gradual erosion. I wouldn't say that there's a specific time period, but I do like I said, I think that the shift towards the no failure focus on children esteem uh, make sure that all children graduate. I think that really is a is an issue. When I think about the difference between when I went to school, or when even when I go to university, I teach at university and college. And when I went to university and college, the fundamental difference that there is in the education system is prior to uh, prior to this this kind of like uh, focus on passing. Uh, the students were responsible for their success more than the teachers. Ultimately, it was understood that ultimately it was up to the students to put forth an effort to be responsible for their efforts. Now, the teachers are completely responsible for the success of the students. We have to engage and we have to make sure we encourage them. We have to make sure that we have to make up for all any kind of issues that they might have. We have to be understanding for them. We have to give them make-up opportunities. If they fail, if they show, don't show up for class, we have to somehow accommodate them. We have to be there for them the whole time. And again, nothing wrong with being good teachers who are engaged with their students, but the emphasis really has been around you, the professor, the teacher, are now responsible for making sure the kid gets through. We, the parents, we, the students, we have your the kids show up at school, we are there, we put them in the school, now you do something with them and make sure that they're successful. Yeah, um, uh, the, the other thing is, you know, parents have um, taking, have taken an oppositional uh, point of view when it comes to uh, the schools and, and, and the teachers. There's a definite disconnect between the educators and the parents, and, well, and, and it's obvious. Part of that is, uh, I think that that's also a social issue. I think definitely. Um, I think that parents are increasingly busy. I think that um, you know they are spending more and more time in, in multiple jobs um, to ensure that they can able to provide the same kind of living standard of living uh, that one parent used to be able to provide in the middle class to provide a middle class standing. And so there is less interaction with the school. There's less partnership with the school. There's more of a um, we're really busy. We're going to put our kids in there and hope for the best, and you're responsible to make sure they're okay. We don't have time to do that anymore, so now you're supposed to somehow parent our kids. When they come home, we're really busy. We are we are having less time to spend as a family, but also the type of time we spend together as a family is very different too, Jamie. If you see parents and kids out in society, what are they doing? Are they connected with each other? Are they oh, they're, all the they're all on screens. They're all on screens. We're all on screens, so we are... We are no longer teaching those important social interaction skills to kids. As a matter of fact, we're giving them devices, letting them just focus on them rather than building these relationships where they have to respect each other. I mean, if we, we started, that part of it started, when, remember when we were used to have these conversations about, is it a good idea to have TVs in different rooms? <clears throat> Should we have TVs and uh, televisions in, 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 in each room of the house? We thought, well, that's not a good idea because, look, all the social skills that can be developed if you have one TV in the living room and everyone has to arrange, argue, convince, cooperate, uh, compromise, which we're, we're going to watch one show together as a family. Uh, well, good luck with that. Now, everyone's doing their separate thing. They're all looking down and no one's interacting. You can't go on a trip anymore with a family and learn how to cooperate and have a good time together in a, in a car or something because there's no need. One person's watching a movie, the other person's looking down their device, whatever. No one's cooperating and teaching these kind of skills anymore. So that... So those things get played off in those classroom as well. Where do the kids learn how to develop these kind of skills? If they're not doing it at home, they're certainly not going to do it in class. And then, of course, there's a movement to bring devices in the class for students to look down at as opposed to spend time 
listening to each other and listening and connecting with the teacher and respecting the teacher. Why won't parents step up and do the hard work, which is uh, being a parent? You talk about how busy they are. You talk about this. You talk about that. Everybody's holding down two jobs. Yep, that's reality, but you have kids, and your first job is to parent them. And that involves um, engaging with the schools on a, in a positive way, I think, that, that tries to respect uh, school policies and, and also educational traditions that we know uh, work. But too often we have parents who instead um, think that it's literally, it's not about the community, it's all about them, it's all about their particular child and nothing else. And that um, they don't need to adhere to any kind of, um, you know, common good when it comes to their kid being involved in school. And so you end up with parents who (laughs) almost live vicariously through their child and take it personally if a teacher says, your child's not doing well in math, your child's not doing well in English, we have to deal with this. The parents go in and blame the teachers. Well, you're doing a lousy job. If my kid's doing terribly at math, it's your fault. And, And that's a real total switch from what it would have been in the old days. If you were, you know, if you were struggling at, at school de- decades ago, or you got in trouble at school for discipline, you were in trouble at home. Well, you know, we don't want to like throw all the parents under the bus. I mean, I think no, but there's, the, this the is, parents are still doing yeah, well. But no, no, but, but this is a this is a this is an increasingly growing problem. I mean, but I think, but I think these are parents though who are having children now who they themselves have had a different relationship with authority figures and right. have learned and have learned uh, and not not incorrectly I don't think yep. to have a certain disregard or skepticism or lack of trust in authority. Right. Yeah. Good reason. I mean, it's not like they, not like people have gone. Oh, we we don't have a reason to distrust authority figures. We we have really good reason with the amount of information that we have and how our leaders are behaving, we have a really good reason to not really respect authority. We've grown up with lack of respect for authority. We've certainly grown up with a more permissive parenting style where we're more engaged in conversations with children and want to know how they're doing and how they're feeling and, and interacting with them. We've kind of gone way to the other extreme. I mean, kids used to worry a lot about parents' happiness, right? Yes, I yeah, yeah. My, I remember my family, <laughs> my parents worried about how happy I was, man. But I certainly had to watch and make sure that they were happy because if they weren't happy, holy crap. So that was okay. Well, that was too authoritarian. So, But now we've switched to the other regard where parents are really focused on kids' happiness and kids aren't really thinking about their parents' happiness. Yeah, so, so how do we get into so how do we get into the middle, Theo? How do we get well, we, get into we the have middle? To understand, we have to understand that it's not working, right? That's that the whole idea of being uh, your friend to your to your children isn't working. And 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 we can't allow the internet to take over our parenting any more than it was a good idea to let T V take over our parenting. And we need to get off of our devices ourselves and spend more time focusing on kids because our children and, and spending more time with with them as families and putting things down and aside and having real conversations with kids. But again, I I understand though that there are more stresses. I believe there are more certainly more stresses on, on families in this particular generation than they were in the previous generations in terms of just how much time that they have. But still, even when that is the case, I still see a lot of parents mixing, making poor use of that time, not making eye contact, and have really given into this idea that every kid, no matter how young, has to have some kind of personal device that connects them to the internet or all kinds of gaming uh, because that's just what everyone does. And so you're giving up control of your kids' minds. You're allowing uh, your kids to become addicted to devices rather than learning important social skills. Okay. That's really important. Okay, so let's get back to then 
the the where we came in on this thing, which is this this you know uh, violence um, aspect, the anger aspect. Um, uh, again, is that tied directly to this um, lack of respect for authority? So I feel that uh, it's okay for me to to exert my power over someone else, whether that's another uh, child in my class if I'm a, a kid, or that the teacher that teaches my class, or whether my mother or father. Well, it's an interesting thing, you know. Uh, you refer to the whole issue of emotional self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably one of the most important skills to develop as a human being, being able to uh, learn about your own feelings, manage your own feelings, be able to choose your own feelings rather than blame everyone else for how you're feeling and expect that they're responsible for how you're doing and how happy you are. And so that's an important social skill that parents need to be teaching their kids and kids need to be learning in the classroom. You know, kid, people don't actually make you feel whatever it is you feel. They don't really piss you off. The way, the way you feel is responsible. based on how you interpret things, make sense of things, how you come to understand yourself. And that requires a lot of training and a lot of practice and a lot of education that we need to incorporate in our classrooms. And we're not getting that if we're not having real conversations at home with each other about how we're doing, how we're feeling, what's going on. But still, you ultimately are responsible for your own life. You're accountable for your own happiness, for your own success. Not the teachers, not whatever you are. You have, what are you doing to work to make sure that you're happy and that you're okay? You know, uh, that, that's a really key skill to be able to be teaching kids. Well, how, how, how do you teach it if you don't know it yourself, if you're the parent, right? right? And you've got a couple of generations now that are struggling with that. How do, how do you do that? That's the question. Well, that's the thing, right? So you know, it has to start somewhere, and so it has to start in school. And so part of what has to happen in school is that there has to be that accountability back. We have to go back to uh, teaching fundamentals in class that aren't just around the ABCs, but are also around decency, respect, accountability, uh, care, responsibility. These things, these things are social skills that are just as important and just as relevant to success as academic skills. We right. have to include those in the classroom. We have to go away from just teaching to a limited, strict curriculum that is based on job success to overall personal success and make sure that children learn that and that they know that there are specific consequences and that if you do not cooperate well and if you do not behave, if you do not respect, if you don't do your work, the fundamental, if you don't do your work, you will not move forward and you will have to spend more time doing the work. It's not someone else's fault that you didn't do your work. It's yours. All right, Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Always enjoy the chat. Thank you so much for this. Take care, Jimmy. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, in our last uh, segment, uh, we spoke with uh, Theo Sellis, who's a registered family therapist. We were talking about uh, Linda Chenoweth's uh, opinion piece that appeared in the Hamilton Spectator recently. She's a former school teacher, and she was uh, writing about um, uh, violence in schools and violence in the classroom and her concerns in her opinion piece about uh, an increase in that um, that she's seen between 1989 and 2012, uh, which was her her teaching career uh, time uh, borders. And, and she points to things like poverty, affordable housing, parenting, pollution, and nutrition as root causes of, of this kind of thing. It got me thinking uh, earlier this week about safety in general in our schools. Um, and, and I thought, let's, let's get some smart people around the table. Uh, instead of just having a talk show host opine about things, let's get uh, the smartest people we can find around the table to have a discussion about that. And we've done that here today. And I'm pleased to welcome to our studio uh, Patrick Daly, chairperson for the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board. Patrick, good to have you here again. 
Thank you. It's to see you. Sylvia Benvon is here, Manager of Social Work uh, Services with the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board. Sylvia, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Peter Sovereign is here, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board Executive Superintendent of Schools. Peter, thanks for the time this morning. Morning, Jamie. And uh, Sergeant John, now I'm going to get this right, Albergas. Sergeant John Albergas. Well, it's actually Alsburgus, but that was Alsburgus, pretty, that I was, was close. That was, that was close, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for allowing me the leeway. I always get nervous when I'm around a police officer. Uh, you're the Youth Services Coordinator with Hamilton Police uh, Services. Thanks to all of you for being here uh, this morning. Um, I, I want to start by uh, discussing how uh, school safety policy is developed and maybe I'll start with you Pat um, there are school safety policies in place at both the uh, separate board and the public board how are those policies developed well Jamie it would start in many cases uh, flowing from uh, directions directives policy memorandums from the Ministry of Education and uh, in a number of cases including uh, school safety obviously being a priority for the government and the school board. So in many cases it would flow from the government and they would uh, require boards to, to uh, put in place policies which meet, meet the regulations uh, of their uh, policy memorandums as well. And I know the public board is a leader in this and, and we like to think we are in the development of our own policies and our staff would then uh, uh, develop those policies, uh, make recommendations to the board. We would consult with parents and the communities uh, and uh, with police services and with these kinds of issues. So it's a, a lengthy uh, and very well thought out uh, uh, program uh, ending with a policy approved by the board and then implementing implemented by our senior staff and principals. Um, uh, Peter, how, how much input do our parents willing uh, to give you when you give them the opportunity? I'm always I'm always curious about that because I, I, I know that uh, when you know our city council sometimes holds public forums they're not always very well attended it's always a you know a handful of people or a few people is that kind of reflected uh, when you give uh, parents or the community at large an opportunity to come forward and and speak up about uh, things when they're in development? Well, I would say I, I would uh, completely agree with uh, with Pat in terms of the process. Um, the process is uh, uh, very thorough and it includes a consultation. Uh, so the consultation will typically be. 30 up to 60 days where we don't just actively go out and um, uh, speak with parents and community groups, but we give them an opportunity through uh, online um, surveys that they can provide all of their feedback. And that's all taken very seriously uh, in part of the, uh, the entire um, policy development process. John, you're the Youth Services Coordinator with Hamilton Police Services, and, and I've also heard the term um, uh, school liaison officer uh, used. Are those two terms synonymous, or are they different? Explain that. Uh, they're entirely different. Uh, we have 10 uh, school liaison officers, and their primary function is to go to both the elementary and secondary schools to deliver proactive prevention programming. Uh, they are in the schools on a daily basis. In fact, last year, our, our 10 officers did over 2,700 school visits last year uh, to make connections with staff and students. And in addition, they delivered approximately 600 presentations in schools last year. And what are those presentations? Uh, would, what's the they content would, uh, of those? deal a lot with bullying. That's a big issue. Uh, appropriate social media use. Uh, inappropriate posting of uh, sexual images, which is uh, an ongoing concern. 
uh, things of that nature. That's, that's their primary purpose. Okay, so when I hear that large number, that number again, how many encounters did you say? Oh, we did over 2,700. 2,700. School visits. So when people hear that number right away and they hear police, they think of something negative. Right away in their minds, they think, oh, if that's the case, we must have a problem if they're doing that. But you're talking about communication exactly. and presentation of things that would prevent negative things from occurring. We're talking about proactive prevention approach. Right. right. Okay. So, so it's very clear then that you, the police service is there in both the separate and public school boards. You're there, you're engaged in, in uh, communicating about things that would prevent uh, problems from occurring among the students themselves. Exactly. Okay. Um, Sylvia, you're, uh, you're a social worker? Yes. Yes. And while your title is manager of social uh, work services with the uh, with the Catholic District School Board, tell me about your role because uh, I, a lot of people might not be familiar uh, with what it is you do. Um, so we have a social work department uh, at our board as well they do at the public board and uh, part of our role is we have social workers assigned out to the schools uh, to provide support uh, to the schools in a variety of areas. So certainly we meet with families, uh, we consult with staff, we consult with the administration at the schools, um, we work with students directly and we provide support when there is an identified need. So that can be a variety of issues. Um, sometimes we are working with uh, students related to some behavioral issues potentially um, and trying to provide some support but then also trying to provide some support to classroom teachers around strategies that they can use for students. How do we promote um, a school community that's pos a positive experience for all schools or for all students to attend? Um, we do work uh, very closely with our community officers and see that as a great partnership when they're coming into our school buildings. Um, and again, it's really, um, as John mentioned, about prevention. So what are the things that we can do to uh, be proactive and to promote a positive school climate? Because we know that our students flourish and they thrive um, when we have a school community that uh, provides them with positive opportunities um, to to grow and to learn. Pat, you, you mentioned that, you know, it starts with guidelines that are set up by the Ministry of Education. That that all makes sense to, to people. That's some politics, some bureaucracy, and then it all starts to flow down to you guys at the at the local board level. So once it's down there, once you've had input from, from parents, um, just tell me about some of the, the uh, I, I, uh, the issues that have been identified by both staff, parents, when it comes to safety in schools, what is it that people want in terms of policy around schools? I think everything that you've heard, Jamie, in terms of uh, proactive and preventative measures so that, you know, serious incidents do not occur. I mean, that's obviously, uh, that's all of our goal is uh, uh, to ensure to whatever degree possible that they don't happen. And I think clearly, you know, in light of uh, what's happened uh, uh, throughout North America and some very high profile uh, sad situations that uh, clearly parents are uh, very, very concerned. And I think uh, that we have worked very closely with the public board and with the Hamilton Police Services to put in uh, plans uh, to ensure uh, that those kind of things do not happen. I would want to say, and I want to on behalf of our board, commend and thank uh, the Hamilton Police Services. Uh, this community, the two school boards, and the Hamilton Police were one of the first communities in the province to have in place uh, a police school board protocol. Uh, and if I might be wrong on this, but I think I'm right, even before uh, it was mandated uh, by the province, uh, that was something that we did collectively as a community because we all uh, place 
safety of our students and staff is the number one priority. The other issue uh, that I would add, Jamie, is uh, the issue of violence against staff. Uh, by students is one of increasing concern. I know with the with the employee groups and others uh, through my involvement at the provincial level, there are a number of committees uh, working on that to to reduce uh, the incidence of violence against staff as well. So there are many many things happening. All as the other uh, uh, individuals have said, to be proactive. It's a huge challenge. I mean, I mean, I'm looking at it as as a parent and as a as a taxpayer and as somebody, you know, obviously who's gone through the system at a, at another time in another place. Uh, and I look at it and I think the challenges are, are enormous. Uh, Peter, once once the boards are able to get their safety policies put into play, <clears throat> the job then I'm imagining, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, comes down to communicating those policies clearly to the people that run those schools on a daily basis. So that would be the school principals. And how big a challenge is it to make sure that those school principals are fully, fully versed in those policies and able to uh, enforce those policies? Well, it's a, it's a great question, uh, Jamie. And, and let me just say that it, it's not really just a matter of communicating the policy. The, uh, the step that's done, uh, and, and I know in our in our um, co-terminus board as well, um, very similarly, we take the policy and then we establish a procedure. Uh, and what that means is that we we flesh out, uh, you know, what uh, at, a, at a higher level the policy would say and get into the real details of what does this look like uh, on the ground in our schools. Um, and, and that's the work that we do with our principals so that they ensure, we ensure that they uh, understand procedurally um, the day-to-day, what they need to do in terms of, you know, promoting a positive culture and well-being, which is one of our uh, top priorities um, in our school and in our schools and in our board uh, through our um, strategic directions. That's something that we heard loud and clear uh, from uh, from parents and and our communities. Um, that, um, as Pat has indicated as well, uh, feeling safe and secure when you're at school, when you're at work, uh, is uh, the highest priority. Pat, you'd obviously uh, echo some of what uh, Peter is saying there. Well, 100%. And what I would add, though, uh, Jamie, clearly the, the school boards and schools have, uh, and the police services have uh, significant responsibilities in all this. But as well, parents are critical, critical partners. And uh, 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 Sergeant John talked about one aspect of, of social media. And social media has created issues, concerns, uh, uh, for schools uh, and the police that none of us could have imagined uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So, you know, parents as well uh, uh, as the primary educators of their children play an enormous responsibility in this. Uh, and that's not in any way to mitigate, you know, the, the responsibility we have, but uh, it's a real partnership with parents as well. Absolutely. And, and just before I move on to, to Sylvia, because I want to touch on that whole social media thing, internet thing and distraction thing. Um, I, I want to ask this question. So if the principals then, uh, you know, get educated, uh, have procedures that, you know, that they f- follow, um, who's going and checking on the principals to make sure they're doing all of that? That's a big job, too. There's a lot of schools between the, the separate and public school boards. So I'll, I'll let each of you uh, ask that one or answer that one. I'll start with Pete. Well, I, I, th- I think... Uh, 
you'll get the same answer. Who's and, policing and the, the principals? Person, the person in the room that's responsible for it's better to answer than me, but superintendents. Clearly, uh, the principals report to superintendents, superintendents to executive superintendents, in some cases, then to the directors of education. So there's clearly a, you know, a whole level of, of leadership. Okay. Yeah, I, and and just to echo that, um, our our superintendents uh, visit their schools approximately every every four weeks uh, at minimum, and so and they spend time in those schools, uh, hours in those schools, working with the principals, going into classrooms, um, and as part of the annual plan that we expect of every one of our schools is an element of uh, positive culture and well-being. And so uh, as part of those visits, as part of those check-ins, which are over and above any training that we provide, um, are the types of questions. uh, So how are you implementing uh, these procedures? Uh, What are some of the challenges? How can we support as a school board um, any gaps that might be there? I'll tell you what, where that question kind of developed. Uh, You know, in in our world, the talk show world, the, the media world, we're always observing things that are going on out in our community and and sometimes we bring it in and and it makes us ask a bunch of questions we think well let's get a bunch of experts around the table i've heard anecdotally lately from friends lots of people that i know that there's a real discrepancy between schools whether it's a public school or a separate school on things like access to schools i've had a number of people say to me things like you know, I have no, my school is, is great. We like the principal a lot. We have this uh, buzzer that we buzz when we want to come into the school. The school's locked. But I buzz the buzzer and the door just opens and I walk in and I could go anywhere I wanted. I didn't have to sign the logbook. A student that was manning the desk while the school administrator was on coffee break or whatever let me in. I could wander all over the school and nobody would ask me a question or ask why I was there or hold me accountable. And if I was somebody that was up to no good, we could have a real problem on our hands. And I wonder how much time do you guys spend on on those types of things? I imagine that you don't spend much time on it unless somebody brings it to your attention, right? On an individual basis. But that's, that's a real concern. And, and I didn't just hear it once. I've heard it multiple times at different times. It was always kind of buzzing around in my head that Boy, it seems like these schools have these great security policies, but that nobody's really enforcing them and that anybody can just get in and do their thing anyway. So, yeah, Jim, that wouldn't be my own experience. I, yeah. Particularly at the elementary school level. Secondary schools. Yeah, this is whole, anecdotal whole stuff. Different. Mm-hmm. At the elementary level, and I, you know, fortunate to be invited to many uh, elementary schools, uh, always have to buzz to get in and sign in when I get there and uh Go to the office. So I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen. No, no. But but I, I and I and I'm not inviting people to call me. But uh, <laughs> I have I have not in recent years received. I can't even think of any in terms of access uh, uh, to elementary school. I, I will correct that in one case. I have each year. Uh, I'll get a few calls uh, on election day with with individuals and, and that issue. And you know we've had conversations with our friends and the public board and and uh, different levels of the government. But other than that, that hasn't been my experience. Mm-hmm. Since we put in the cameras in place, the government funded that, uh, I think that situation is much, much better than what it used to be. Okay, yeah, I mean, the idea that it's a little frightening to me to think that students uh, in elementary school would be the ones with their finger on the button to let an adult into the building at any time during the school day to have access to the school. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not paranoid. I'm not thinking that everybody's up to no good. But we all know how this goes. You, we would only need one 
terrible thing to happen, and then everybody would be sitting around a panel discussion going, oh, we have to prevent this from happening. So, so Jamie, um, obviously we, we welcome all feedback, um, but I, I will tell you, um, since you mentioned anecdotally, uh, anecdotally going to schools and visiting schools um, and very deliberately not using my access key, but Testing but, it a bit. But testing it. Yeah. Uh, which is what I know our superintendents do on a regular basis. That's good. <laughs> um, and uh, but you 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 know you certainly can't be there for every single no. incident. But our expectations, as I'm sure it is in our um, in in the Catholic Board as well, is that while students may be assisting, um, the expectation is that there is the adult staff member there doing the scrutinizing. Very good. We'll take a short break and come back with more with our panel here on uh, school safety, and uh, we'll talk about some of the social issues uh, that uh, schools have to deal with uh, on a on a daily basis. I think uh, I think their plates are perhaps fuller than ever before in the history of education. We'll get to all of that here. On the Bill Kelly Show with Jamie West on AM 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Happy to uh, have our panel in studio uh, talking about uh, school safety. And, uh, it, of course, that branches off into all kinds of uh, areas of, of discussion. Uh, talking about how policies are set up in both the public and, and Catholic school boards and how those policies lead to procedures and how those procedures are enforced by uh, individual principals and individual schools across our city. In studio with us, Pat Daly, chairperson for the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board. Thanks for being here. Sylvia Bin-Vaughn is here as well, manager of social work uh, services. Peter Sovereign, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board executive superintendent of schools. And Sergeant John Alsbergis. Did I get it right? You got it. Alice Burgess, I knew I'd get it right. Youth Services Coordinator with Hamilton Police Services. I'm going to start with you, John, on this one, and then I'm going to go over to Sylvia. Um, we were talking during the commercial break about, you know, where are the bad schools, John? You know, people have an idea in our city that, oh, if you're from that area of the city, the school's terrible, the, you know, the youth crime stuff must be up, there must be more shenanigans going on. Dispel that myth. Uh, actually, that's a very good question. With respect to youth crime... Um, the youth crime is very proportional to the area of the city's population. I'll, I'll give you an example. For policing purposes, we've divided the city into three divisions. Division one would be the downtown central area. Division two would be uh, Stony Creek area. And division three would be the mountain. Division one has approximately 20% of the city's population. And proportionally, that's where 20% of all youth crime occurs there. Division two has approximately 30% of the city's population and 30% of the youth crime occurs there. The mountain has approximately 50% of the city's population and 50% of all youth crime occurs up on the mountain. So it's totally proportional. We don't have a identified bad area. There's no such thing as an identified problematic school. All right. Uh, from a policing perspective. Sylvia Bin-Vaughn is the manager of social work uh, services with the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, Catholic District School Board. Sylvia, uh, big, big challenges. I am imagining that you guys don't have, literally don't have enough resources to deal with the demand for the help that uh, both students and parents uh, need in today's school system to deal with all manner of issues. Perhaps you could talk off the top about what the top two or three issues are that you deal with regularly? Um, 
absolutely. I think one of the primary issues that we deal with um, in our schools is students who may be impacted by a mental health issue. So certainly anxiety and depression are uh, right up there in terms of some issues that our, uh, our students are coming in with that we're trying to help them um, either work through and provide some support with. Um, and I think we have come a long way in um, educating uh not just our teachers in our classrooms, our administrators, but also um, our families, our students themselves in our community as to um, what types of things do we need to look for? How do we start to identify issues um, that may be emerging early in students? And what are the supports that we can provide them? Um, you know, supports in the classroom, supports out in the community, because I think, again, we had talked about how do we support our schools? What roles do schools play? The engagement of our parents, what role do they play? But also the role of the larger community. Um, and we have uh, definitely... You know, we have a, a, a lot of resources in our school, not just through our social workers. We have, uh, you know, uh, psychologists within our board. We have a mental health lead where we have a mental health and addiction strategy. We have speech pathologists. We have a number of support staff and resource staff that we can draw on to provide support to the schools, but also the larger community supports um, that we partner with um, to provide these supports, group programs, individual supports. Uh, so the list goes on and on. But again, is, is there an, enough resource for the demand because we know that in general if we if we just set the education system over here and we look at the healthcare system we know mm -hmm. for sure that there isn't enough resources to deal with the demand for child mental health services we hear it all the time and that's over in the ministry of health over here it's mm -hmm. got to be reflected in education absolutely i think we do see that the demand is is uh, often greater than the resources that we have but again i think that's why uh, we also want to look at what can the community do to start to support these kids and when we can create opportunities for kids to participate in um, extracurricular activities or to participate in mentorship programs where in the school where they can do something that they feel good about, where they can participate in something and feel like they're part of a larger community. I think we are creating opportunities for them to improve their own uh, mental health and their and you know to develop positive positive coping strategies right from day one. How willing are parents to um join in uh, your leadership in, in, in those types of efforts. Uh, you know, I, I get the sense sometimes that parents send the kids off to school. You're the school. You're supposed to deal with all of this stuff. Don't, you know, I got to go to work. Don't get me too involved. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen a, a very positive response from our parent groups when we're engaging them. Um, I think we are providing them with information and providing them uh, with tools that they can use at home uh, with their students. You know, we're engaging kids in, in programs like Roots of Empathy in our schools, tools for tools for life where we can communicate back to parents here are some strategies that you can use with your children at home and I think we've seen the parent engagement increase and grow as we um, kind of draw them in to events that we're uh, participating with the schools you know mental uh, health and wellness days where we do invite uh, sometimes parents to come in and participate and learn the things that their kids are learning as well you know we heard uh, the, the the efforts against uh, bullying um, began in earnest about a decade ago according to my calculations I'm thinking on the early part of uh, of the new century. Are we making any headway on that, uh, Sylvia? I think we are making headway on that. I, I think like anything, it's when you create opportunities for awareness and learning. I think we do try to uh, foster environments where kids are learning compassion um, and learning empathy. I know that in our board, certainly we draw on our faith as a component where we can teach kids um, 
skills, about compassion, about forgiveness. Um, we try to refer and reference, you know, evidence-informed and evidence-based programs, um, you know, where we're using restorative language with the kids and teaching them how to problem solve and, and have conflict resolution uh, where they can come together and live in a community. Sergeant John, uh, when you speak to and your colleagues speak to students, whether they're elementary school students or high school students, what are they saying? What are students talking about to you guys when you're engaged with them? What are their concerns? What are their issues? Well, as Sylvia has mentioned, bullying is a big, big issue. Um, and because it's, it's so easy to do it today. Uh, when you and I were growing up, bullying was a face-to-face encounter. Now, because of the huge explosion and expansion of social media, people can make threats and or make very bad comments regarding other people without having to do it face-to-face. So uh, they, they feel that they're somehow protected and can easily make those those comments. A- interesting and a great point you bring up about social media, about electronic devices and all of that. That's got to complicate things for you, Sylvia, and, and your colleagues in, in dealing with uh, the issues you just mentioned, anxiety, depression. Um, mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of families that are going through separation and divorce as well. That all enters I- into all of that. But the electronic device thing, how are you able to deal with that? I think that's a very challenging thing to manage. Um, we know most kids walking into our high schools, almost all of them have personal devices. Um, even in a lot of our elementary schools, the uh, you know grade six, seven, and eight students have that as well. And so it's teaching kids about how to use those devices responsibly. Um, students have been very uh, good about bringing forward concerns um, when they're coming across, even through their uh, electronic devices. And so it's about helping kids kids learn how to manage, um, you know, when do you need to shut that conversation down? It's okay to, um, you know, not engage in those things online. And then to seek the supports that you need of of resources, how you can get support if that those issues are happening. Well, and, and, and the, the advent of, uh, of electronic devices and social media and so on and so forth uh, to both you, Pat, and, and Peter, uh, becomes a safety a topic and, and would lead to the development of um, policies and procedures around their use and involvement in the classroom, correct? Uh, Is that ongoing? Is that starting to happen? Are you starting to develop policies and procedures around electronic devices, use of social media in in schools, that kind of thing? What I'll say, Jamie, is that uh, so we have uh, embarked on a a fairly aggressive initiative in in the last uh, couple of years um, that uh, really does focus on um, using the um, electronic tools that both we provide or that students might bring themselves. Um, and, and how do you use those in a very responsible way, not just for learning, what we would consider learning in a classroom from an academic side, but um, how do you learn with those tools so that you really become that responsible citizen in a world that's both physical and digital now? Um, and yeah, they're so not going re- away. They're not going away. This yeah. world really is both that... Uh, that balance of physical and digital. And so it's really important that we focus in on um, utilizing those tools that students have in in building positive relationships uh, with one another. I can almost, Pat, uh, see it becoming 
uh, something, uh, again, that becomes a, a, a subject or a, a guideline topic within the Ministry of Education itself in the not-too-distant future and maybe even becoming a part of the curriculum uh, uh, going forward, both at el- elementary level and at uh, post-secondary level, uh, teaching the very things that you guys are starting uh, to, to teach. you agree with Peter? Oh, I absolutely agree with Peter 100%. And, and I think uh, rather than the university level, I think, as Sylvia said, we need to start uh, when children are quite young, uh, and I don't know what their ideal grade is, but clearly at four, five, six, seven, whatever at that level. But I want to come back to one point I made, Jamie, earlier, because mm-hmm. this is where parents are critically uh, important in terms of educating, monitoring uh, their own children in terms of appropriate use of, uh, of various social media. Uh, schools can do a lot, for sure, uh, but can't do everything, and, and parents have that uh, responsibility. And I know the police services host or attend many, many sessions, uh, parent, uh, you know, Catholic school council meetings and others uh, to uh, educate parents about the dangers as well as, uh, you know, proactive uh, of uses. I, I say to people uh, quite often, uh, uh, you know, I don't how much more difficult it would have been for me as a teenager uh, growing up, uh, uh, you know, with the phones that you can access everything on and and uh, say everything. So clearly, there are there's great value in it, but at the same time, that we parents need to be aware and and supportive of the schools when when these kinds of situations get out of hand. Sylvia, is there uh, any smart thinking at this point on on when, at what age, and how much uh, access or exposure uh, young people should be having to uh, the World Wide Web and social media? Well, I think as Pat mentioned, it's just really important. Uh, One of the most important factors is going to be the parent monitoring. So if you have students who are using their devices at a younger age, it's making sure that you're aware. What is the content of the videos that they may be viewing on there? What is the nature of the conversations that they may be engaging in with other uh, students? Because we know that technology for a lot of um, students is actually very beneficial to help develop their learning and to further their academics. And so it's monitoring that closely and working with your with your child, making sure that you have the proper parental controls. Um, for some students, um, you know, they may need to keep their cell phone with them if they're walking home. It may be a safety concern. So it's, again, it's putting some parameters around that, creating some healthy boundaries, and then making sure that um, together we're working on how do we monitor that. Pat, do you think that, uh, do you have a, a sense overall from, from an overview that our schools and I'll let you speak for the separate board, are safe in Hamilton, that parents really don't have anything to worry about. Absolutely. I, I'm uh, No question in my mind, they are safe. Does that mean, uh, you know, that in the rare situation something bad can happen? Of course, it can happen uh, anywhere, unfortunately. But there's no question in my mind that our schools are safer today than, than maybe ever. Okay, and you're satisfied with the protocol that is put in place, the procedures that are put in place for when security is breached or if something happens or if a parent raises concerns, you're satisfied that that, that, uh, uh, that procedure is, is okay? I am, but I, again, I would encourage parents, if, if there is a concern, uh, to bring it to the attention of their sure. school principal. Peter, same thing for, for you guys? I, I, I really do have to echo um, Pat's comments there that, um, you know, as far as the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, um, our schools are welcoming, our schools are safe. 
Um, are we always looking for ways to improve as our uh, Catholic counterparts? Absolutely. As the police service, we're always looking for ways to improve. Uh, we, we don't want to have uh, incidences where students or staff are feeling unsafe or threatened. Uh, but uh, overall, again, I'll echo Pat's comment that uh, today I'd say that our schools are, are safer places to be. Uh, than they were um, a long time ago, certainly when I would have attended school. I think the challenges are, are, are huge, and, uh, and I, I, I think that uh, you guys must have wish lists. Um, and, and maybe I'll put you a little bit on the spot, Pat, by asking you um, if you were able to go forward um, to, to the next level and, and say, this is what I need as the board chair for this uh, school board in Hamilton, what would what would that item be, or what would those items be? Yeah, I get obviously you know, and we do that our board, the public board, and you know the associations that we belong right. to advocate for additional resources to the Ministry of Education all the time. Yeah, and clearly in the area of special education funding and in many other areas. I guess if you were to ask me to point out one, uh, it would be something that Sylvia talked about earlier, and that's additional support in terms of social workers and others that can assist with mental health issues for children. I think uh, there are many other areas, but I think if I were to be challenged to point out one, that would be a real, real concern for me. And uh, I want to, Jamie, for sure, uh, and I know the public board staff are equally as committed, but really thank and commend all of our staff. I mean, they're doing a tremendous job. They, like us, would, uh, I'm sure, want additional resources, but I can't speak highly enough about the great work of people like Sylvia uh, and the, the staff in our schools. It's a very difficult job. Peter, same thing. Uh, wish list. Uh, what, what would you guys have uh, close to the top? Um, and not surprisingly, it really isn't uh, different than what Pat's just described. I'm sure that, you know, that our chair, um, uh, Todd White, uh, would say the exact same thing in terms of uh, advocating and, and lobbying uh, the Ministry of Education and other levels of government uh, that, um, you know, we'd welcome additional resources in the areas um, such as mental health. And particularly if we were to narrow it down uh, in um, areas where our youngest students are, are coming to us. Uh, I'd say that we've identified that as um, a very significant um, you know, area of, of concern um, that, again, our staff, uh, just like our, the staff in the Catholic Board, doing a tremendous job uh, with the resources that we have. But uh, I'd say that's definitely an area where we can use uh, a whole lot more. Uh, and, and I'll ask uh, Sergeant John here. Do you do you guys hear from from parents who are are upset and angry um, regarding any particular issues around schools or school safety? And and our parents' expectations of what can be done. I'm saying in quotation marks. What can be done? Are those expectations uh, realistic or unrealistic? I'm in my third year as the youth services coordinator. I have only had one parent ever once comment to me on school safety and you already covered that issue it was yeah. a, an elementary school where uh, this individual felt that they were they just got buzzed in freely and no one uh, made them sign in one yeah one incident in three years well and yeah and that's a serious issue and obviously it would be dealt with in in that in that manner as a as an isolated but with uh, respect incident, uh, to just in general policing and school safety our schools are safe uh, we have an excellent uh, police school board protocol. We have excellent policy and procedures in how the police will respond to any identified threats to school safety. 
All right. And, and uh, again, uh, back to you, uh, uh, Sylvia. Um, how much time do you have to spend with, with parents uh, kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of talking them down or offering them some perspective that maybe is outside of whatever emotion, emotions they may be feeling at any given time? Uh, so as a social worker in the schools, I think our social workers do a tremendous job of, of talking to parents and just educating them and helping them to understand um, the issues that students in our system are facing and, and uh, particular issues that uh, their child might be facing. And so I think um, we we don't need to talk parents down. I think it's more about um, providing them with education around what's happening. Um, and I think I've seen some really positive uh, collaboration with schools and, and families um, and our teachers have really come together to, um, you know, our teachers, our EAs, our, you know, all of our support staff in our building um, administration right across the board have done a really great job of creating collaborative processes with families so that they can address these issues. That's another uh, area that we really didn't get into in any great way. But with the, you know, 40 seconds we have left, teachers have a tough job. Are they beating the doors down at uh, to, to your offices and your offices saying you guys have to do something. We're being asked to do too much here uh, on a daily basis with regards to social issues and safety issues and all of that. Uh, we don't we can't teach because we're too busy doing all these other things. Do we do we hear that? Is there a din of that in the air at all? Anybody? Well, I think at the provincial level in terms of the, you know, the representatives of teachers and other education workers, clearly we uh, we hear uh, those kinds of concerns, and there's a number of provincial committees in place right now in terms of violence in school, school safety, and all of those things. So, yeah, we're sensitive to it, and uh, we're trying to respond to the issue of, of both the staff and the parents. All right. Peter, same thing? You know, what I would say is... You guys is, are in lockstep see, this morning. That's good. Uh, well, because... Uh, Shows I, you I, communicate. I, That's I, good. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll say this. Uh, teaching is uh, an extremely, extremely... Uh, difficult uh, and rewarding uh, job. Uh, it is, um, and it's one that uh, I think y- you go into because you you want to make a difference. Uh, you want to make a difference with kids, with youth, um, and um, you you realize that your classroom is just that microcosm of society. And as society changes Definitely. and becomes more complex, so does your so does your classroom. Yeah, the classroom's a great barometer on what's going on out there in the real world, isn't it? Thanks very much, uh, Pat Daly uh, with the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board, Sylvia Vaughn with the Separate School Board, Peter Sovereign uh, with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and uh, Sergeant Jonathan Alsbergus. Gas. Alsbergus. Alsbergus. As long as it's not asparagus. (laughs) (laughs) That's great this time of year, too. Thank you very much to all of you for being here today. Really appreciate it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.